Welcome to Notes from the Electronic Cottage. I'm Jim Campbell. One of the themes of the Electronic Cottage over the past 20 years or so is that digital technology can be a wonderful help to us in our day-to-day lives. It can also be a huge detriment to us living our personal lives as free, independent, autonomous human beings. We looked at one example of the two sides of tech on a recent episode focused on how our electronic devices can create amazingly detailed records, not only of locations we visited, but also of what we've done as we've moved through our days. As the conclusion to one study put it, quote, in addition to being able to learn a person's significant locations, it can infer low-level activities such as walking, working, or getting into a bus. The output of our system can also be used to generate textual summaries of a person's daily activities, end quote. And those summaries can not only indicate where we were, but through inference, what we were doing and even why we visited places such as health clinics or political meetings or places of worship. Location information can tell some pretty powerful stories about who we are, what we care about, how we vote, and even what we think. Location-based services can be wonderfully convenient for getting driving directions and so forth. What can be done with collected location information? Maybe not so much. Today, let's look at a couple of other emerging technologies that also offer potentially great benefits, and not surprisingly, some serious potential downsides. When a person is in a location in which languages other than one's native language are spoken, it's often difficult to navigate. That's true of vacation travel or business travel or whatever. But suppose a person just had to speak a question in English in order to get a room in a hotel, for example, and that question would be repeated in French or German or whatever language, so a person who spoke the other language could understand the question and then answer the question, which answer would be turned back into English so the asker could understand the answer. Back in the days of Buck Rogers and other outer space movies, those kind of sci-fi real-time translators were always in evidence when space travelers landed on other planets. Guess what? Those real-time translators are now much more science than fiction. Many people may be familiar with Google Translate, which has been available on computers and mobile devices for a while now, but that service only works with text. At the recent Consumer Electronics Show, Google rolled out Google Interpret, which will enable two people who speak different languages to have a modest conversation using Google Interpret through a Google Home Hub, for example. The two speakers need to be reasonably close together in a reasonably noise-free space. Even so, Google Interpret can translate in 27 languages in almost real time. And that is pretty amazing. Move over, Buck Rogers. So, how does a machine translator perform that seeming magic? Has the machine somehow learned the grammar and vocabularies of 27 different languages? Nope. It's artificial intelligence and machine learning based on statistics of huge samples of people using those languages. This is a similar process, by the way, to the one that makes it possible for machines to mimic a person's speech patterns so well 
that it's difficult to determine if that person ever really spoke a particular sentence or not. We'll probably be seeing, and unfortunately hearing, a lot more of those darker sides of speech synthesis in coming election cycles. Moving from speech to image, in a recent letter in Nature Medicine, researchers reported on developing facial recognition software that they called Deep Gestalt that was trained to identify often rare genetic syndromes simply by looking at a person's face. Quote, Syndromic genetic conditions, in aggregate, affect 8% of the population. Many syndromes have recognizable facial features that are highly informative to clinical geneticists. Here we present a facial image analysis framework, Deep Gestalt, using computer vision and deep learning algorithms that quantify similarities to hundreds of syndromes. Deep Gestalt outperformed clinicians in three initial experiments." End quote. That is pretty amazing stuff, especially as we move more widely into the world of telemedicine and could help bring great assistance to chronically overstressed doctors. On the other side of the coin, while such technology may well help clinicians, it could also serve to help employers or insurance companies discriminate against people whose faces suggest that they may have a particular genetic syndrome. And of course, facial recognition technology in general is becoming so cheap and so widely used that most of us don't even realize we've been photographed and had our features analyzed while in public or private places. There are, of course, cases in which we use facial recognition to our benefit, for example, to get through airport security lines faster. Some smartphones are using that technology instead of passwords to allow access to the phone, and a number of companies use facial recognition scans to allow access to workplaces. Biometric identifiers like fingerprints and facial recognition scans, and more and more DNA scans, certainly do serve as useful tools for establishing identity. But have we thought through these technologies sufficiently? After all, if our email gets hacked, we can change a password. We can't change our face or our DNA. That fact has certainly occurred to the government in China, where people who live in public housing in Beijing must use facial recognition keys to be able to get into their apartments. That's all part of the Chinese government's larger plan to have a facial image database of every person in the country within two years. That may make some people shiver a bit and feel grateful that we live in the land of the free. Except the FBI is building a biometric database which, best guesses are, already contains photos of about half of the adults in the United States, the great majority of whom have never been accused of a crime or investigated, let alone convicted. The amazing expansion of facial recognition technology, for good or ill, is under no national regulation in the U.S. Perhaps that's why there are calls for government regulation from sources ranging from the Project on Government Oversight all the way over to the president of Microsoft. And we'll try to take a look at some of those proposals and why some think they're needed right here on future editions of Notes from the Electronic Cottage. <music>